All right, so I'm curious. Has anybody here ever heard of the Darwin Awards? Okay, a bunch of you have heard of the Darwin Awards. Very interesting uh, if you've ever heard of these. Because I think about the phrase, I'm thinking about the Darwin Awards, and what made me think about it is this idea of you heard of the phrase, you know, have you, can you read the writing on the wall? Have you seen the handwriting on the wall? You've heard of that, and I think that where my mind goes is, Oh, the Darwin Awards. These, these knuckleheads couldn't, you know, read the writing on the wall. And the Darwin Awards, let me explain what they are if you don't know what they are. Um, and here's what they, they say. They say it's an award that is famously given out each year for the most stupid death. Okay, that, this, is, this is their website. This is what they say. It's rewarding the person's willingness to remove themselves from the human gene pool. Which is, which is, which is kind of cool, you know, and then if they say, and all entries are verified. So, you know, they actually made sure that these actually happen. So these are, you know, survival of the fittest. These are the people who just, you know, they don't kind of deserve to live and <laughs> couldn't see the writing on the wall with their crazy knucklehead ideas. So I was reading through them, looking at a bunch of them. A couple of them just kind of grabbed me. And, and, and I was thinking about that as we get ready to dive in today. But uh, I don't know, maybe you, you think this is humorous. I, I kind of did. Uh, not that life is not serious, but just what these people did. 1997, 22-year-old Eric Barcia decided that he wanted to bungee jump off of a 70-foot bridge. And nothing wrong with that, you know, I mean, people bungee jump all the time off of bridges. So he decides to get a few bungee cords and tie them together, okay? First part of the story. Second part, he ties himself up real well, and he figured he's going to be all good. You know, these are good, strong bungee cords, and he's tied himself up. He actually measured the distance, 70 feet minus, you know, the length of himself, you know, the, the height that he is, so just shy of 70 feet. And now everybody here says, you think, Eric, you could read the writing on the wall? So he jumped. What he failed to realize is that bungee cords do what? And so what did he do? He uh, smashed. Uh, yeah, that was it for him. Uh, Darwin Ward removed himself from the human gene pool. Second one really grabbed me. 1995. Robert decided to do something that nobody had ever attempted before, to ride his jet ski over Niagara Falls. Now, I love that one. I'm like, this is pretty cool. I like this. But he knew, you know, in order to do that, he's going to have to make some modifications. So he built a booster rocket. Now, once he got to the end, he was going to hit the button, and it would propel him out over the falls. And then, to make sure, you know, he would land safely, he had built in also a parachute that would, 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 would you know, launch, and he'd kind of drift down safely, right? So he heads off the falls. Well, he'd been in the water a long time, and, and his booster rocket got wet, and his parachute got wet, and he went off the falls, hit the button, didn't work. Started going down. Said, oh boy, I got to at least launch the parachute. Went to launch the parachute, full of water. Nothing happened. End of his life. That was it. He didn't see the writing on the wall either. You and I look at that and go, uh, that, you know, that's a knucklehead. That's status right there. That is not very intelligent. We're in the middle of a sermon series, and we're talking about this ugly thing inside of us that prevents you and I from seeing the obvious. See, we hear these stories, and for us, listening to them, it's pretty obvious that's not very smart. There's something in all of us that prevents us from seeing the obvious, from seeing the writing on the wall. And it prevents us from acknowledging what we need to acknowledge. Hey, guys, you two guys, th those are dumb ideas. 
It keeps us, this thing inside of us keeps us from admitting what we need to admit. Everybody else can see the writing on the wall. Everybody else can see clearly, but you're not willing to because of this thing inside of you, this ugly thing that keeps you from initiating what you need to initiate and from listening when you need to just stop talking and to listen. What we're talking about for the last couple of weeks, what are we talking about? We're talking about pride. And we're talking about that ugly part of pride. That, that pride that just, that it's a prison for us. And I really don't want you to miss as we kind of lead off with this every week. Pride is a prison that shuts you in. And so that shuts other people out of your life. And it shuts God out of your life. And ultimately, because you've been shut in because of your pride and because of my pride, it leads us to a place of isolation. And once we get isolated, life is extremely lonely. Now, you can be sitting with people right now around you, and you can have family and friends all around you, but because of pride and reality, you're isolated and you're lonely. And so we're talking about this, and we're just kind of taking different angles and different approaches to the topic because we're trying to name it and call it out. We're trying to break up with our pride. It's a horrible relationship with us, for us. We want to get out of this relationship because we don't want to be isolated. We don't want to be lonely. And this week, what we're going to learn in Pro- that Proverbs tells us, verses, chapter 18, verse 12, it says, pride leads to our destruction. That's how bad pride is. It leads to destruction. We're looking at a passage in the Bible today that talks about a person who refused to break up with his pride. So consequently, he couldn't see the writing on the wall. And so his actions and his behavior, because of his pride, it ultimately led to not only his destruction, but to the destruction of many thousands of others as well. Now last week, we, if you were here, we talked about King Nebuchadnezzar. And it was Labor Day weekend, so there's actually a lot of you who weren't here. I encourage you to go back and you know, watch the message or listen to the message. And last week we learned, if you were here, maybe you remember this. And, and Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. He had to learn this lesson that, that who rules? Who rules? Does anybody remember? The word starts with an H. Heaven rules. We learned that last week. Heaven rules. Now, this week, we're 40 years later. King Nebuchadnezzar is dead. The Babylonian influence isn't what it once was under his reign. There's a new, you know, big dog on campus, so to speak. There's a new big dog on the block. And the new big dog is not the Babylonian Empire, but it's the Medo-Persian Empire, led by Cyrus the Great. So at this time, the Babylonian kingdom, it still exists. It's just not as grand and powerful. And it's essentially ruled by two men, Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar is ruling the city of Babylon and the surrounding region. Nabonidus, is, he's out, you know, leading the way and taking charge and leading the army, trying to, you know, be at war with the Persians. But Nabonidus is defeated time and time and time again. He eventually has to surrender. The army has to surrender. He flees off to the hills. And then the Persian army under Cyrus the Great turns their attention from the army to that great city of Babylon. They show up to Babylon, the Persian army, the Medo-Persian army, and they surround the city. Now, you need to know this. Daniel prophesied that at the time of the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, at that time that the country would be taken over by another country. 
Daniel prophesied that. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 51, he also prophesied the same thing. But Belshazzar was full of pride. He was arrogant, and he was overly confident. In fact, he believed his city, this great city of Babylon, had enough supplies that they could hold out against a siege for not one year, not five years, not ten years, but they felt they could hold out for 20 years against a siege that would come their way. He also believed a city, what you know was, nobody could get in. That they, no one could ever get past their massive walls. And so Belshazzar, because of his pride, he can't see the writing on the wall. And because of that pride, he ignored the truth of God's word. He ignored the truth of God's word in Daniel and in Jeremiah. And I wonder, do you and I find ourselves, because we're in this relationship with pride, do we find ourselves, because of that pride, oftentimes ignoring God's word? Gary talked about it earlier during his devotion, that, that the word of God is life. Jesus, the word of God, is life to us. And how often do we, because of our pride, ignore God and his word? And so, in his arrogance, rather than prepare for battle, rather than to address the surrounding army that's around his, his city, Belshazzar decides to throw a party on the very night the Persians have surrounded the city. And so now they're all cut off from any source of help. This party that he throws, he dedicates the party to the Babylonian god Marduk. And what he does, Belshazzar, it's actually pretty fascinating. Now let me give you a quick backstory. And as I'm doing this, uh, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. Or turn, uh, if you're using the YouVersion Bible app, you can go on there, go to live event, go to events, go to live, you'll see LifePoint. Everything's in there, the scriptures, the notes, you can take notes on there as well. Make your way to Daniel chapter 5. Now, Belshazzar's grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, anytime he would go into a city, or, uh, or anytime he would go into a country or a nation or a city-state, Every time he conquered that city, that region, whatever the case may be, he would go into the temple or the temples. And he would go in there and he would take the god or the gods that were represented or were the gods of those people or that region or that area. And he would take them as his way of saying, he, Nebuchadnezzar, and his god, Marduk, we have conquered, we have been successful and have overcome you and have conquered and overcome your gods. He would take those gods with him. He'd take them back to Babylon. So he had this huge room that had all these gods from all of these places, all these cities, these states, these nation states that he had conquered. Well, 40 years later, all of that still exists. And on the evening of this party, Belshazzar says, hey, we're surrounded by the Persians, but I want everybody here to know our god Marduk's still in charge. So he brings out Marduk, places him on the table in the center of the room. And then he brings out all these other gods from all these other places that the Babylonian Empire had conquered, surrounding Marduk in kind of a pictorial way of saying, Marduk is going to protect us. You don't have to worry. Let's party. So that's what you have going on at this moment. Now, one more note. When Nebuchadnezzar and his army went to Israel, 
and they went into Jerusalem, and they conquered Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and they went in the temple. They went in the temple to get the Jerusalem God. And once they walked into the temple, did they discover an idol, you know, in the Jerusalem temple? Did they discover an idol? What's the answer? No. Well, why didn't they find any, you know, God, any idol in the temple? Because why? The God of the Jews, the God of the Christians, we worship an invisible God. There's to be no idols. And so Nebuchadnezzar and his people, they're kind of looking around going, well, there's no God in here, and what do we do? And we've got to show that we've conquered. So they said, all right, hey, gra- grab the goblets, grab, you know, grab the cups and the, and the silverware. Let's take all that, and it's all gold and all that. That'll be our representative of, you know, conquering the Jewish people. So that's what he does. So Nebuchadnezzar, or, or excuse me, Belshazzar, he's at this banquet with all these people, He's reveling in the fact that, you know, he is the king and Cyrus is never going to take his city. And in Daniel chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, he then brings out the, you know, the Jerusalem idol, so to speak, even though it's not an idol. He brings out the, you know, the golden and silver goblets that his grandfather had stolen from the Jewish temple. And he's using these at the party. It's just this complete humiliation of God. And, and, and just kind of this attitude of, we are in charge, we're good, he's full of pride, nobody's taking him down. I've conquered every God, even an invisible God. You got the picture? That's what's going on here inside Belshazzar as he's throwing this party. And right in the middle of the party, and I want you to imagine... You have this amazing city, this giant city, and it's surrounded by the the Medes and the Persians. And in his arrogance, Belshazzar is throwing this party. It's like he's spitting in the face of these Persians. Suddenly, in this banquet hall that there's over a thousand people in, the Bible tells us, in in this banquet hall, you see this finger show up by the wall. And this finger begins to write letters in the plaster on the wall. Daniel chapter 5, verse 5. You can imagine when that happened and everybody looked up. The music stopped. The party stopped. Everybody put down their drinks. And then in Daniel chapter 5, verse 6, it tells us, notice what it tells us about Belshazzar, this man who's full of pride, this man who thinks he's something great. It tells us that he's so afraid by what he sees, his knees begin to weak and give way. He calls in his magicians, and he's like, somebody's got to interpret this because nobody knows what the writing on the wall is. And he calls them in, and in Daniel chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, he says, Look, whoever will interpret what's on the wall, uh, whoever can figure that out, I am going to give you gifts. I'm going to give you so much. In fact, Nabonidus, Nabonidus, my dad, you know, he's in charge. I'm second in charge. I'll make you third in charge of the entire Babylonian kingdom. Somebody tell me what's on the wall. What does it mean? Then, Belshazzar's wife remembers this elderly Jewish statesman named Daniel and remembered and had heard the stories about what Daniel had done and how Daniel had interpreted dreams with the the grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. So they send for Daniel in verses 11 and 12. Daniel looks up on the wall 
And he sees the hand and he sees the, the writing that's on the wall on the plaster. He looks over at this prideful man with no humility in him whatsoever in Belshazzar, who at the moment is full of fear. And this is where we pick up the story together, starting in verse 17. And Daniel answered the king, and I want you to notice what he says to the king. First of all, he says this, Hey, king, verse 17, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. See, Daniel's not interested in that. He doesn't care about fame, notoriety. You know, he's just a servant of God. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, he says there in verse 18, the most high God. Now, when he says the most high God, whose God is he talking about? The Jewish God, the invisible God, the most high God gave your father, it's actually your grandfather, the word was used interchangeably, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Let's pause. Belshazzar, my God, the God, the King of Kings, the Most High God, he loaned your, great, your grandfather, he loaned him some greatness and some glory and some majesty and splendor. My God loaned it to him. Verse 20. But when his, and this is we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar, when his heart, and we're going to say a word together out loud, and I want us to all say this word. When his heart became arrogant and hardened with what? Hardened with pride. He was deposed from his royal throne, and he was stripped of his glory. You remember the story from last week if you were here. Jump to the end of verse 21. He was deposed He's stripped of his glory, verse 21, until he acknowledged that. And by the way, if you were here last week, this is the same phrase that Daniel used last week in Daniel chapter 4 to Nebuchadnezzar. It was listed three times in, in Daniel chapter 4, same phrase. Until he acknowledged that the Most High God, he is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Belshazzar, your grandfather, who was a great king, he came to finally figure out, he came to realize and understand that the power that he had, the authority that he had, the influence that he had, it was on loan to him from the king of kings, the most high God, the Lord of lords. Daniel chapter 5, verse 22. We're getting ready to say another word together. But you, Belshazzar, look at verse 22. You, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you what? Though you, though you knew all of this. You knew all of this. You know what pride really is? Pride is actually knowing the right thing to do. God's called me to do this, take this step, live this way, humble myself in this way, acknowledge this, admit this, apologize here, surrender to God, go to my knees before God, give him this, whatever the case may be. It's knowing the right thing to do, but choosing not to do it. That's what pride is. And what is pride? The Bible tells us pride is sin, right? James 4, 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. You see, the story about Nebuchadnezzar had been circulated. It was a common knowledge story to the Babylonians. 
that once Nebuchadnezzar had came back, he learned the hard way, once he came back to his senses, and if you remember the story from last week, if you weren't here, please go watch it, go listen to it. He, he, because of his pride, God humbled him and made him like a beast of the field. He lost his senses. He went out into the fields, and he began to eat grass like an ox or a cow, and he lived in the field, and his hair grew long, and for seven periods of time, we think it was seven years, God was humbling him in a very dramatic way. Once he came back to his senses, once he got the opportunity to reign in Babylon again, Nebuchadnezzar told the story. And he passed along the story to, his, to the people, to his children, to his grandchildren. Passed it on, I imagine, to, to, to Belshazzar himself. So his children knew it. They all knew the story. Verse 22, Belshazzar, you knew all of this. Verse 23, you knew all this. Instead, notice what it says. We just talked about this whole idea of pride and humility and humbling yourself. And you don't humble yourself, God will humble you for you. You knew all of this instead. And here's, this is why when we get towards the end of the story, God doesn't even give, I'll just tell you right now, God doesn't give Belshazzar another chance. And I think it's because of this verse. I think this verse prophetically lets us know where Belshazzar's at in his heart. See, I think God knew that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn a lesson and he would respond. Belshazzar is a little different. So notice verse 23. Instead, you knew all this about being humble. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord. Uh-oh. I just want to encourage you before we even get to the end of the story. Don't ever set yourself up against the Most High God. It's not a good spot place to be. It's not a good way to live. You've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had, and here's part of his biggest fence, you had the goblets from his temple, you know, God's temple, brought to you and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines. You drank from them and you praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron. I want you to picture this. You have Marduk sitting there, right? You know, you have Marduk, the god, sitting right in the middle. And surrounding the god is all, you know, the other quarterbacks surrounding, you know, bowing down to the great God. You have them all surrounding Marduk. And they're made out of clay and rock and stone and gold and wood. And you're sitting there and you're praising these gods. The gold ones, the bronze ones, the silver ones. You're acting like these gods, these idols are something even though they were made. Verse 23, you notice, notice what it says. You're praising all these things which cannot see, hear, or understand. No kidding. They're just an inanimate object. No offense, Marduk, and notice what he goes on and says. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. That's the verse. You did not honor the God, the Most High God, by the way, who holds in his hands your life in all your ways. Verse 24, therefore he had the hand, he sent the hand that wrote the description. Now I want you to think about this. Daniel's saying to Belshazzar, you, you, verse 22, you should have known. You knew all this. You knew the lesson. You heard the sermon. Here's another way to say it. You heard the sermon last week talking about pride. 
and you walked through those doors and you just continued your life. Uh oh. Don't get so close, Pastor. You knew all about it. And you chose not to do what God has asked you and called you to do. So now God comes back and says, I'm going to remind you of a couple things. Verse 23. First of all, he says to Belshazzar, God holds your life in his hands. See, everybody here is going to eventually die. How foolish it is for Belshazzar or for us to not honor the God and give glory to the God who gives us life. How foolish that is. By the way, you and I are never promised long life. God has never offered that to us. We're not entitled to a happily ever after life. But what I do know that God promises us, he promises to be with us. He says, if you give your life to me and surrender your life to me, I will give you the promise of the Holy Spirit. I will indwell you. That's what God promises us. No matter how short or however long our life is, God tells us that he will give us his peace, that God will comfort us no matter what we're going through. Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher, he didn't know God, by the way. Even he said this, every man should live his life knowing one day he will stand in judgment for what he's done. That's interesting. A non-believer said that. Well, the author of Hebrews said this, uh, something similar in Hebrews 9.27, and is appointed for men to die once. And then after this comes judgment. So God tells us very clearly how to live in light of the fact that he holds our life in his hands. In first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, he tells us it. And he says this, So we make it our goal to what? We make it our goal to please him. Whether we're here at home in the body or away from it. In other words, life here is temporary. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of you may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Look at verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Please don't miss this. God says that even as Christ followers, he says you and I need to have a fear of the Lord. And yes, you and I, we know we are loved by God. We are accepted by God. We are forgiven by God that his grace and his mercy is sufficient for us. But that shouldn't take away from the fact that God has called us to have a fear of the Lord. And this passage tells us that that fear of the Lord actually causes us to, it motivates us to want to please Him. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, fear is not, hey, be afraid when we think of fear. That's not biblical fear. Biblical fear is a holy and reverent awe. Or to make it simple, it's a healthy respect for. Let me explain what that means to help us. Years ago, um, before you know, we outlawed everything, you could take a woodworking class in school. Uh, anybody here remember those days? You know, in the good old days, some of you are like, what's a woodworking class? And you take these woodworking classes, and, 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 and the teacher, well, on day one, they'd get up there, and their number one job on day one was to teach you to fear the machine, right? That was their goal. 
Now, what were they trying to do? What was that saying to fear the machine? To have, you ready for this? Does that mean, oh, I got to fear the machine. I can never use it, never touch it. I got to stay away. Is that what it meant? No, it said have a healthy respect for what it was and the power that it had. That's what we're talking about here. To have a healthy respect for who God is and what he is and for the power he has and be in awe over that. That's what he's saying. God holds your life in his hands. And so knowing that our time is temporary and couple that with, you know, having a healthy respect and fear of God, a healthy awe over God, that should motivate us. It should cause us to want to live a life that pleases him. And it's our pride that gets us in the way of doing that. And Belshazzar struggled with that. And God called him on the carpet. And then God went on in verse 23 and lets Daniel let him know that God holds in his hand all of our ways. All of our ways. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live, or whom, another translation says, whom we exist. The bottom line is this. God says, in my hands are all of your ways and all of my ways. In other words, God's basically saying, I own you. I own you. I I have a plan for your life. I have a purpose for your life. And and, and so God's reaching out to us saying, I want to know, are you living out my plan? for your life? Are you living out my purposes for your life? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 20 says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. It was a heavy price. Jesus paid the price by dying on a cross for our sins. So whatever we are, whatever we have, our time, again, I mentioned it last week, week, the three T's, our time, our talent, and our treasure. You can view all of your life through those lenses. Your time, your talent, and your treasure. Whatever you have, God is saying, hey, man, I I own all that. And when we act like he doesn't and it isn't God's, that's pride. And Daniel was reminding Belshazzar, you missed it. You missed it. Isaiah 30, verse 1 says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine. So let me ask you, are you living according to the way that God wants you to live? Or are you just living your own way? Jeremiah 10, 23 says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. It's our pride. It was Belshazzar's pride that says, no, 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 I'm all good. I can handle it on my own. I can direct my own steps. Oh, but God, I I want you to bless me. Uh Uh-uh. God owns our life. It's in his hands. Then he goes on, and he says, let me sum it up simply, verse 23. You just didn't honor God or glorify God with your life. By your words, by your action, Belshazzar, you've missed it. And so, Belshazzar, I want you to know. And now he gets into the meat of it kind of laid it out for him and says, all right, here's what you need to know. Verse 24, therefore, God sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And you could imagine as Daniel's speaking, there's a pin, a pin could drop in that room. It was so quiet. And everybody's listening in to Daniel. 
And Daniel says, this is the, verse 25, this is the inscription that was written. And Daniel reads the words, mene, mene, tekel, parson. Verse 26, here's what these words mean. And everybody, all thousand people are leaning in to listen. Mene, verse 26, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to, and if you're looking with me, verse 26, has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to a what? To a, to an end. Because of your pride, Belshazzar, your days are up and they're ending now. Again, the message is clear that God is building on this message for all of us. Our life on earth is temporary. It's for a time. It's for a season. And Belshazzar, you are a king, but you are not the king. You are a boss, but you are not the boss. You are great, but you are not the greatest. And this moment Here's Belshazzar in all of his glory, throwing a party. And by the way, they, as they excavated the city, they realized that the entire city was partying that night, not just the thousand people in the hall. He had put the word out for the entire city. Belshazzar in all his glory and all his fame and all his pride. Everybody thinks he's so amazing, and yet the writing on the wall is clear. Your days are numbered. Why are your days numbered? Look at Verse 27, second word, tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Last week, Nebuchadnezzar, we all learned and discovered together that not only is life temporary, but you're accountable. And now he's letting the grandson know you missed the message that you knew. If you were here last week, you heard the message, you walked through the doors, you should know it. You are accountable. It's a huge lesson for all of us to learn. Someone else weighs us. Someone else judges us. Someone else holds us accountable. And now, Belshazzar, you must give an account. And Belshazzar, I'm putting you on the scale. And you are found wanting. You have not measured up. You've been found deficient. Now, when I think about scale, where my brain goes is to the idea of losing weight. And when you think about scale, one of the strategies in losing weight is to get on the scale. Now, we have been taught, uh, conventional wisdom is said, you know, how often you get on the scale? You get on like every day or, you know, once a week or once a month. Well, well, I, I found this article at USA Today a couple years ago. It said this, the old conventional wisdom was, don't weigh yourself more than once a week. It'll drive you crazy. And if you've ever done a diet, you might know the truth of that. But here's what they discovered. Now we're seeing more and more research showing that the optimal frequency for weighing yourself is every day. So I guess you're going to have to deal with the going insane every day if you decide to do that. Weigh yourself every day. Let me tie that in. You see, God invites us every single day to get on the scale. In other words, we wake up every single day and we say, God, my life is in your hands. My life on this earth is temporary. And God, I recognize that I am accountable for it. So God, I want to live today in a way that honors you. Can I ask you, is that a prayer? Is that a declaration, a statement to God? God, I recognize my life is temporary. I'm held accountable today for you, everything I do, and I want to honor you. Is that a prayer that we should be praying just every Sunday? Or is that a good prayer to pray every day? Right? That makes sense. If that's in your brain and in your heart every single day, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, then when you get on the scale before God and you're held accountable, you won't be found wanting. 
So if God says to get on the scale and you got honest, what would it say? Maybe you, you're like, man, I wouldn't be good. Remember, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by what Jesus did on the cross. Turn your heart to Jesus. Surrender to him. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just. He'll forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You just go to him. And then you say, God, by your spirit, I want to be led and guided by you every single day. We finish it up. Daniel 5, verse 28 says, Perez, third word. It means your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Again, we're reminded your influence is temporary. So how about we go to God and say, God, I'm accountable. My influence is temporary. I want to maximize it for your glory every single day. But he didn't do that. Now, here's what's fascinating part of this story to me. Your influence is temporary. Your kingdom's divided. So how did it play out? Well, that um, night, they're partying. The, the Persians are, Medo-Persians are surrounding the city. A week prior about, the Persians had, Cyrus the Great was, he was called the Great for a reason. He was pretty great, pretty smart, all this. They went upstream of the Euphrates River, and they dammed it off, and they diverted it to like swampland, you know, kind of like our Yolo Causeway here. They diverted the water. And so for the last week, the Euphrates re- River had been going down. Now, Babylon was built uh, around the Euphrates River, and th- some of the walls literally re- went through and right over the river. The river's been going down for the last week. And as Daniel is in this hall, as the declaration has been made, the water's going down. And at that time, right as that was all happening, the water went below the wall, the Persians went in. And that very evening, they conquered the city. That very evening, they executed Belshazzar. Just like God mentioned. I don't want you to miss the irony. The writing was actually on the wall a week earlier. (laughs) The water was going down. They couldn't see the writing on the wall. Why? Pride. That relationship with arrogance. And so as we close this morning, I just want to ask you, has your pride caused you to ignore God? To ignore the truth of God and His Word? Have you, in essence, been ignoring the writing on the wall? We've been talking a couple weeks about this relationship with pride and getting out of it and breaking up with it, and God has been speaking to you. And it's our pride that prevents us from doing what we need to do or saying what we need to say or listening when we need to listen or changing something or diverting something or getting away from something or falling on our knees. It's our pride. And we are reminded again Life on earth is temporary. You're going to be held accountable. I'm going to be held accountable for my life. And what God wants us to do is honor him with all of our life. Can you say that about your life? Let's pray. God, I know you invite us this morning to take steps to draw near to you. Your word tells us if we were to draw near to you, you'd draw near to us the full assurance of faith. And so, God, we come before you this morning. And, God, we say it's time to break up and get away from this relationship with pride and draw near to you. God, I think you've been pretty clear to us and you've spoke to every single person here and each person knows because your Holy Spirit's talking to them. 
where their pride has stood in the way and it's been leading to destruction in their life over and over and over. So God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the strength to take the steps we need to take that you've called us to. God, I know for some of us right now, we come to give you an offering. And this is an act of worship. And God, we do this fully recognizing that you are the God who provides. And God, this is even part of the, you, you know, your financial strategy for us to give you our first fruits. And so God, our, we set aside our pride and we say, oh, we're not going to do it my way and our way because we think we know what's best. We're going to trust you, God. So God, I thank you for those who do that now. And God, for some, for years and years and years, they've sat in a church and they've never dealt with this topic of their treasures. And God, I hope and pray that you've used these messages to speak in this specific area of their life and that they'd set their pride aside, God, and they'd be ready to try it your way, that you get our first fruits. So God, for some, I imagine this week is maybe the first time they've really taken that step. And I pray, God, you do great things in their life as a result. So God, we come to give you these gifts. Use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.